Good evening, and welcome to the June 2023 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, it is Pride Weekend, and I can think of no better way to celebrate the spirit and meaning of this weekend than to share the coming out story of a local member of our community. My guest tonight came out as a gay man while serving in the United States Secret Service. Yeah, you heard me right. He was a Secret Service agent whose assignments included protecting the Obama family. He has a new memoir out titled Breaking Free, a saga of self-discovery by a gay Secret Service agent. So stay with us. My conversation with Corey Allen is coming up right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, June 25th, 2023. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of June 25th, 2023. Happy Pride Weekend, everyone. Fifty-four years ago this weekend, police raided a bar in New York City known as the Stonewall Inn. It wasn't the first raid of its kind or the first time a riot broke out with patrons fighting back against oppressive laws targeting LGBTQ people. But it was the first time the media and America paid attention. As police hauled out gay and transgender people and tried to arrest them, the crowd outside the Stonewall grew larger and more violent, pushing the police back into the inn. The swinging 60s were a time of public revolt and political action. Many marginalized groups were making great strides. Many, except for one. In many states, people could be incarcerated as a sexual psychopath the minute it was known you were homosexual. You had no legitimate right to really even exist as gay people. So there was no place where you could be sure at the beginning of the night that you wouldn't suffer an attack during the night. During that period, um, uh, beating up gays was a national sport. It was actually against the law to serve an open homosexual at a bar. It was against the law. Gay New Yorkers could at least gather at the Stonewall Inn. It was a CD bar. It was run by the mafia. They only opened it to make money for off of gay people to exploit gay people. It was the best bar at the time. And of course you could dance, the music was great. We just didn't have things like that. The bar was dirty, it was unpleasant. Jukebox was great. And uh, drag queens control that. Police raids on Stonewall were often and routine until one night. On Friday night, June 27, 1969, the New York police force pulled off its biggest raid ever on the Stonewall Inn. The angry crowd pelted the police with bottles and rocks. And as we kept pushing them backwards, they were laughing nervously. But it seemed to get more serious, and we pushed them back into the bar. The police were stunned. I mean, those were the riot police at a gay bar, unheard of. There were thousands of people involved out in the streets opposing the police. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And then this one queen, Miss New Orleans was very skinny. She was so outraged, she started grabbing a meter and almost single-handedly tore the meter out of the street. And then these queens used it as a battering ram. This is what shocked me. And I said, my God. The definitive turning point came when a lesbian had been inside the bar uh, and was being roughed up by the police as they took her out of the bar into a patrol wagon. She also said to the onlooker, she says, why don't you guys do something? And then everything went crazy. The crowd erupted into an on-again, off-again fight against the cops. From the fighting, a movement was born. If it had just been those nights of uh, rioting and, and outrage and nothing followed it, um, nothing would have changed. The first gay rights organizations were created after Stonewall. We put on dances that were by and for the gay community. We built up a huge uh, treasury was used to start the first gay community center. A year after the riots, the group marked the occasion with a march. We decided that the march should start around Stonewall on Christopher Street and march up to Central Park. We had threats. We were scared. We often refer to it as the first run because we went so fast. By the time that we got to the, to the uh, park and I turned around, it was unbelievable. It was one of the great 
top moments of my life. I get chills for singing about it because in one year, we went from a bunch of hidden people who fought back one night in the dark to thousands of people marching in the sunlight. It's a central park as proud, openly gay and lesbian people. Fifty four years later, we're still marching and celebrating our community and who we are. Happy Pride, everyone. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Pride Month is a time for people to be out and proud as members of the LGBTQ community. But coming out is still a significant challenge for many people, especially those working in conservative professions like law enforcement and the Secret Service. Corey Allen served our country in many ways, first in the military following the 9-11 attacks, then as a deputy sheriff, and most recently as a member of the United States Secret Service. His new book is titled Breaking Free, and in it he discusses the demands of this very unique job, how it consumed his life, and how he broke free from it. Corey's going to be doing a book signing and event this Friday night at the Russian River Book and Letter Company at 14045 Armstrong Woods Road in Guerneville. The event starts at 7 p.m. and is open to everybody. But you don't have to wait until Friday to meet Corey because he's here with us tonight. Corey, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I, it is a pleasure and an honor to be here. Uh, it's great to talk with you, and I love the book. I just got to tell you, I, I, it was hard to put down. And so I'm really excited to talk with you and to hear uh, about your story and to share it with our listeners. Uh, Thank you so much. I'm still at a loss for words when it comes to these things uh, because I'm I'm first book out. um, So thank you. Thank you. That's about all I can say. Yeah, well, uh, let's get into it. You talk a lot in the initial part of the book about your childhood and growing up and, and family was very important to you for sure. Set the stage. Where did you grow up? And talk about the key people in your life who helped shape you as to who you are today. Uh, so, yeah, grew up in western Pennsylvania, um, out, a suburb outside of Pittsburgh. Um, and after mom and dad parted ways, I was uh, seven years old at the time. Uh, we moved to the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia. Um, my two brothers are older than me, and my sister is eight years younger. So I was lodged right in the middle of the clan. Um, and through those years, we moved around a lot as a family. Uh, renting apartments in various locations around um, generally Mechanicsville, Virginia. Um, And mom was a nurse, so it was good employment for her while supporting the four kids. Um, She often worked like midnight shifts and lots of overtime. Um, And a lot of those times I found myself looking after my sister, um, which I didn't mind since I adored her. Um, But then from ages 8 to 18, um, there was domestic violence in the home due to mom's live-in boyfriend. Um, But through those traumatic times, it actually drew mom, my sister, and I closer to each other. So it, to this day, fermented those relationships, Mm -hmm. which is beautiful. Um, But through childhood, I I saw myself as my sister's ardent protector and tried to stay close to home in case a violent episode occurred. Um, Somebody was there to help Mm -hmm. uh, and call 911, and that was usually me. Little did I know way back then how those interactions would influence my life and lead me to where I'm at today. Mm-hmm. Um, greatest influences, that, that is easily my mom and my grandfather. Um, no question about it. Um, mom instilled her work ethic, selflessness, and dedication uh, to the family in me. Uh, and my grandfather was the one constant male father figure in my life because I didn't see my father for years growing up and mom's abusive 10-year boyfriend was certainly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not filling those shoes very, very well. Um, but my grandfather was my mentor, my idol. He was always there for me, and he was um, stability in an otherwise turbulent upbringing. Yeah. You wrote very kindly about him in the book. I, I remember that stood out to me. And uh, I had a great relationship with my grandparents, too. I, I still think about them a lot, and so I can I can connect with that. Now, give us a sense, what year, what time period, what decade did the are you talking about here when you were a child? Uh, primarily in the 80s. Okay. Um, and so, as we know, domestic violence laws back then were also right. virtually non-existent, really. They'd break up the fight and then they'd go about their way, um, which just, the cycle continued. Right. 
in the in the 1980s, it wasn't easy to be a young gay kid either. Um, when did it, when did you come to the realization that you were gay, and what sort of brought it to light for you? Yeah, it certainly wasn't the time to do that. No, um, I, I knew something was different probably around the age of seven. Um, so it was young. Um, it was something that was inherent and difficult to pinpoint at the time, but I dared not say anything to anybody. Um, I found myself intrigued by a Playgirl magazine that was in the house, um, and I felt oddly sexual um, for being so young, but yet my brothers never made any mention of similar feelings. Um, so, of course, I never mentioned it to anybody. Um, my childhood best friend became um, the object of my affection once I hit mm -hmm. puberty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, I dared not say a word to anybody. This was probably age 12 or 13, somewhere sure. in there. Um, but I, we hold it in. We, we suppress it, especially growing up in a conservative area. You're worried about your fear, you know, safety right. just, and just the risk involved of, of what may occur. Um, which I did women up until I was 26, 27, um, doing what society expected of me. Um, and then when I finally had courage enough to meet up with a guy, uh, just confirmed what I'd known all along. Um, so it was a little bit longer for me to come out, but I think that's fairly normal for, for people of my, my age. Sure. sure. Well, it's not normal. Yeah, sure it is. I didn't come out officially until I was 41. But of course, I knew back in seventh grade and, um, you know, led that whole bifurcated life. And I'm sure your story and my experience in law enforcement is going to be very, very similar. But but before we get to that, uh, you talked about how the 9-11 attack influenced you and how that set a, tra a trajectory for your career. Tell us. Yeah, yeah it sure did. Um, of course, none of us expected that day. Um I had flown home from, um, I had enlisted in the Virginia Air National Guard in April of 01, just seeking some structure in my life. Mm -hmm. um, I was floundering around between 18 and 21 years old. I didn't didn't know what I wanted to do, bouncing in, a, in and out of college. Um, so I went into the, um, the military following footsteps of many of my family members. Um, and I flew home from Air Force basic training on September 10th, 2001. Wow. Um, so 9-11 was the First day I was home, first day I was able to sleep in at home. Um, and then my uh, stepfather called and woke me up, alerting me to what was transpiring. Um, I was absolutely mortified at first as I didn't know what I had gotten myself into because none of us at that time joined the military thinking we're going to war, <laughs> certainly in that same year. Right. Um, but after I shook off the shock, I, I called my unit, threw on my uniform, and I, and I reported I didn't know what else to do, but felt that's what I had to do, despite being terrified. Um, and I hadn't even been through training yet. So what I could do was just clean up the shop and, and help the guys as much as possible, mm -hmm. um, since I couldn't actually work on the jets until I went back to training. Mm -hmm. um, but I was honored to, to be present for that and part of the 192nd Fighter Wing. And our jets were the first ones in the air on 9-11, um, being we were so close to Washington, D.C. Right. Um, it certainly cemented my career path in government service that way back in 2001, I wouldn't have thought that here we are 22 years later. 22 uh, years later, yeah. And I'm still doing it. So, yeah, yeah. definitely played a, a role. Well, and of course, being in the military at that time, you knew that you were gay, right? And, and that was all during the period of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So what was it like to be gay? But also you had a real passion for the military. It's not something you would have wanted to walk away from or be thrown out of. What was that? The, what was that like for you? Correct. Um, it just fell back into the habit of suppressing everything. Um, I didn't say a word to anyone or or hint what I was truly feeling, um, and I actually fell for a classmate of mine during tech school training, which was six or nine months long in um, Wichita, Texas. I don't, I don't remember how long it was, but I I, I fell for him. Uh, longed for him and hoped that he helped, felt the same. And of course, we were close ca classmates and hung out constantly. Um, and I had considered going into the Air Force full time just to try and to go with him to, um, I think he went to Elmendorf up in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. uh, but I never told him of my feelings. Um, I just held it all in, swallowed them, and eventually 
moved on with life and got over him. Um, but for fear, I didn't want to get thrown out of the military. Um, getting a dishonorable discharge would have been devastating to me and my family as my grandfather, who was a World War II POW. That's right. And served this nation with, uh, you know, bronze, bronze medal and POW, um, Purple Heart. Um, but there was just zero chance that I was going to um, risk letting him down or my sure. family. Um, and then that would have absolutely impacted my future going forward, trying to do anything with the government service. Um, so I just sucked it up and didn't say a word to anybody. Yeah. But then you ended up going into local law enforcement. You started out with the sheriff's office. What about law enforcement? I mean, I get the military, the attraction to the military, that that was a part of you. But what what attracted you specifically to law enforcement? I had an uncle um, who was a state trooper in Pennsylvania, um, who I admired. Um, and my great grandfather was a sheriff um, in Indiana mm -hmm. County, Pennsylvania. Um, so a couple of officers in my family. Um, but after I was done with the training for the Air Force, I went back to college to finish my degree since the GI Bill and all that was going to pay for it. Um, then at the age of 23, I felt um, that it was time to get my full-time career going. Um, and I figured policing would be a good fit since I flourished in the military environment, that it would be paramilitary, that it just seemed logical. Mm -hmm. uh, and turns out I was correct. Um, I actually really enjoyed um, policing. The autonomy and the discretion um, coupled with like moments of sheer adrenaline are to this day hard to beat. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, there's perilous situations, moments of horror, pursuits, and a whole lot of camaraderie. Um, and that camaraderie was, I was also missing that from the military and going into policing. I was able to, to get that back. Um, cause the, the trust between officers, it, you know, it's, as you know, it's just an unspoken bond, right. Um, that you can read each other's minds, uh, without having to say a word. And that's crucial when dealing with volatile situations. Mm -hmm. Um, Third year in, I started field training new officers, and I became certified to teach at the Basic Academy, um, which fulfilled. I had also gone to college originally to be a history teacher, so I had a passion for teaching, and then I was able to yeah. teach the Basic Academy and teach the new recruits, which I really loved. Um, having a hand in their development and, and a say in, in how policing is being done. Right. No, I totally get it. But... Sheriff's offices are not known for the, being the most um, LGBT-friendly organizations, even still today. Did you experience a lot of homophobia in the academy and in, and in the agency that you work for? None in the academy. Um, and again, nobody knew anything about my personal life. Mm -hmm. um, and for the first year or two as being an officer, I, I was dating, outwardly dating women. Um, so I was showing up to events uh, with a woman on my arm. Um but then as time passed, it is a conservative area um, and certainly a very political environment. Um, as you said, with the sheriff's office, I could be fired for anything because Virginia was a right to work state. Um, so there was uh, terrifying moments, if you would like, of being found out that I was gay and I bought a condo outside of the county and the next in Richmond um, to then hide my, my identity, I could live my life a little more freer, mm -hmm. um, just hoping I didn't run into colleagues um, with the boyfriend that later became my husband. Um, yeah, it was it, it, uh, a fine line to walk. Yeah. <laughs> about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, trust me, I know. I know. And even uh, when I left, um, I was married at the time, um, and only one person in the entire department of 250 knew that I was gay and married to a man. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just because my close friend, fellow officer, she attended the wedding. So that's just how I had to live my life. And they, and you were able to keep that a secret. I was, I was very good at it. Wow. That's, that's quite an accomplishment. So before we get to the next chapter and your federal service, I was fascinated by the fact that you were a country music singer or maybe still are a country music singer. I, <laughs> yes. Um, it has been a part of my life from the beginning. Um, mom has always had music in the home and in the car. Mm -hmm. um, 
especially between the drives between Richmond and Pennsylvania, or I'm sorry, Virginia and Pennsylvania, when, you know, driving back and forth to see our families. Um, and then from probably around the age of 10, I found myself allured by country music, mm-hmm. um, hearing George Strait, Randy Travis, Clint Black. Yeah, I think this is around 19, late 80s, early 90s in that generation. Um, just sitting in the back of a Camaro Z28 was our family car. Um, driving six hours, seven hours at a time. And that's just my mind would wander and focus on the music. Um, so I often dreamed of being a country music singer on those drives. And at age 18, I finally sang for the first person for the first time in public um, at a bar in Louisville, Texas, of all places. And it turns out I actually wasn't half bad um, and decided to be courageous enough to sing at the restaurant and bar where I was working since the age of 15 because we had karaoke on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Mm-hmm. Um, the same place where Jason Mraz had been singing because he attended the same high school. Um, and I had a massive crush on his best friend um, who also worked at the restaurant with me. Um, but anyways, back to music. Um, that's what I decided I wanted to do with my life. Um, I went to all the concerts, met Charlie Daniels backstage, bought a guitar, took lessons from the same teacher as Jason Mraz. Um, wrote a few songs during um, college classes when I should have been um, studying. Um, and back then, I think it was through AOL, but I somehow connected with a studio owner in Nashville um, who agreed to let me record some cover songs in his studio. Hmm. Um, so I drove to Nashville in my Chevy Blazer by myself. Um, stayed the night at a hotel on Music Row. Um, and just waited out the next day, but the studio owner was running super late. Um, and I did not have money, um, for another night in a hotel because I was young, not good with my money. Um, so I hung around in Nashville as long as I possibly could before I had to make the 12 hour drive back home. Um, and so recording in the studio never occurred. Um, and it would be years later until I had another Nashville run in. Um, so yeah, that's, <laughs> I focused on my policing career. So are you, is music a part of your life today? Absolutely. Yep. Sure is. Um, Sirius XM, it's, it's on in the car, it's out in the home. If I'm working out, if I'm cleaning, it, it's usually always on. It is cathartic. It is, I can be listening. It brings back raw emotions. Uh, it mm-hmm. ties our memories mm-hmm. um, to that point in time to wherever it was that it left that imprint. And that's what's so beautiful about it. Well, maybe we'll do another show and have you sing. So <laughs> I would be honored. <laughs> Uh, you made a decision to leave municipal law enforcement and pursue something at the federal level. What what, what was drawing you to federal service? Yeah, I had um, finished my bachelor's degree in 2007. Um, so I went back to school. While I was uh, a police officer um, and I knew I wanted to go federal um, from the moment I finished it. Um, I wanted the prestige of being um a fed as it was called or still called actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but also sought to expand my horizons outside of Hanover County, Virginia. And there's nothing wrong with Hanover County, Virginia. I love it. It's where I grew up. It's home. It's where mom still lives. I go there all the time, but I just wanted more. Um, and I just, that was the avenue that I, that I wanted to take. Um, I wanted to travel more, try living in a more progressive area. Um, so I could begin the process of coming out and being my true self. Mm. Um, Cause up until that point in life, I was closeted to most people. Um, I also felt that I wouldn't advance very far in the political climate of the sheriff's office. Um, and as I mentioned before, I lived in fear that I'd be fired if it was discovered that I was gay. Um, so I figured this would be the natural route to take. Um, and you thought it was going to be safer working for a federal agency. I, <clears throat> I, did. I was a little bit naive about that, as we are in our youth. Um, but yeah, I, I, okay. I thought for sure that it would be federally protected yeah. and I, w- I would have more yeah. rights and yeah. wouldn't be that same climate. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Secret Service was always an attraction for me, too, looking at if I was ever going to do a federal job, I think that would be one that I would be interested in doing. Uh, for our listeners who don't know what the Secret Service does, tell us about it. And what 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 did you see in that particular department or agency that that drew you? 
Yeah, of course. Um, so they're best known for protecting the president and vice president, um, but they do a whole lot more than that. Um, they handle investigating financial crimes against the United States, uh, which is all kinds of fraud looped into there, um, counterfeiting uh, U.S. currency. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are the experts when it comes to um, counterfeit U.S. currency, which is where they got their start way back in 1865. Um, protective intelligence investigations, so that's like threats against the president, vice president, or visiting uh, foreign heads of state. Uh, and mm-hmm. they have a renowned electronic crimes section, arguably the best in the country. Yes, I'm giving them a, them a plug, but uh, I, I think it's deserved. Um, yeah. But I had um, applied to the FBI and the Secret Service actually on the exact same day in 2008. Um, but the Secret Service was the first to offer me a job after 18-month uh, process. Um, and they also gave me this option of six different cities of which I could pick from to go live. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was super attractive, um, whereas the FBI did not offer that. Um, they, we, they wouldn't tell you where you were going to live until, I think, week 10 of the academy. And that was based off of um, class rankings, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Bureau did call and offer me a job, um, but I was already in the, the Secret Service Academy. And I knew where I was headed to Miami. So, of course, I declined it. Um, but I was allured to it by the media portrayal of the agents because they just look badass um, and they're well regarded. Um, and I had met a Secret Service agent through a circle of gay police officers in Richmond, Virginia. Um, so I got to learn a little bit more that way. Um, and then at the time, my husband and I, we wanted to live in Washington, D.C. And we were like, okay, well, FBI or Secret Service, the Secret Service has to put us in Washington, D.C. This is the most logical choice. Um, and so that's why I went with the Secret Service. But of course, we saw that they didn't have any openings in D.C. at the time. So I went to Miami. Well, that didn't turn out to be too bad of a choice. Uh, life really exploded for you in, in Miami in a, in a very positive way, right? I mean, I'll describe it as you really bloomed. Is that an accurate description? <laughs> yes, I would agree 100%. So talk um, about it. I mean, what, what happened? What what? Um, new job, yeah, new agency. It was, it, uh, it was an opportunity for my husband and I to establish ourselves as a, as a couple. And we hadn't yet done that. We were newly married. Um, here we are in a brand new city full of, um, Lord have mercy, the boys in Miami. Um, beautiful. Um, and there's just so much diversity there that um, Richmond wasn't known for being very diverse. Mm-hmm. Um my high school to employers, there just wasn't a lot of diversity in that area at the time. And Miami really opened my eyes to to seeing the beauty across the spectrum. Um, yeah, the, the dark hair and the dark eyes um, of the boys mm-hmm. drew me in mm-hmm. uh, real fast. Um, and then couple that with a culture of partying. Uh, we ended up getting a place on South Beach and every weekend was just a blast. Um, we met a couple of others um, who had recently moved to Miami as well. And to this day, they are still friends of mine. Um, they live here on the West Coast now. Um, but then we met a group of guys who lived in Fort Lauderdale. Um, they took us in under their wings. We all became fast and close friends. Um, it just, it felt like home. Mm-hmm. Um, they were family. They were our chosen family. Um, we hadn't met people like that since we'd left Richmond. So we were kind of clamoring to find people to hang out with um, who were, who were genuine and down to earth. Um, and then shortly after meeting the Fort Lauderdale boys, we bought a house in Wilton Manors, which is mm-hmm. just outside of what's well, a city within Fort Lauderdale. Um, yeah. They were judgment free, flirtatious, extremely fun. Um, all, they were all very successful, had great jobs. So I felt safe with them knowing that whatever it is we were doing on the weekends wasn't going to make its way back to the office. It wasn't going to make waves anywhere, sure. whether we were on the boat at a pool party, it, it didn't matter. They respected your, your privacy and the need for discretion. Absolutely. We all did. And that's what was so great about it is we could just be ourselves and yeah, it, it was fantastic. Was so were you able to be out though within the secret service in Miami? Um, no, not really. Um, 
it was more like being yanked out of the closet um, because they knew I was gay before I even stepped foot in the office after the basic academy. Um, and that was my first lesson that there are no secrets in the secret service. Um, and again, I, I was naive. I, I hid it through the academy. Nobody knew. My classmates who I'd spent eight months with, nobody knew because I, you know, as you go through this hyper-masculine career, you become a pro at hiding these things. Right. And that's what I had just been doing all along. So I continued it um, because with the Secret Service, the probation period was three years and 120 days. And so in that three years and 120 days, you could be fired for anything. Poor performance, being gay, it didn't matter. They didn't need a justifiable excuse. It was just you're a poor performer and they send you on your way. And I'd seen that occur to a classmate of mine. Um, so it was critical that I remain off the radar as much as possible. That was a long um, probation period. It, it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I stayed off the radar, presented the most masculine version of myself that I knew how to. Um, and I felt that I just had to work extra hard and diversify myself in the event that my sexuality became an issue that I may was trying to make myself as indispensable as possible. So with it, you hid in the academy. So how did they find out? Probably through the background investigation, because they did interview my... It, we weren't... I don't think we were married yet when, when they were at that point in the background investigation, but they did interview. Mm -hmm. So it's it's just word of mouth. I mean, it's a small... It, it's not a small agency, but it's, it's not massive. Right. And being... Right. An anomaly, I guess. Right. <laughs> it would. It made its way down there real fast, um, yeah. and I, I was naive to that. Um, but it didn't affect your employment. I mean, you were very successful, and it was okay. Yeah, there, uh, a couple of discrimination issues popped up, but again, being on probation, and I had heard what the the big supervisor in charge of the office had said um but i i just i buckled down and did the best i could do to, to survive because there was no way i was going to mess up this opportunity and go back to richmond with the tail between my legs that i couldn't cut it or i i didn't deserve to be there um so until i hit 3 120 i just i kept my mouth shut i didn't mm -hmm. make waves um and i just tried to do the best i could yeah so you talked about your first experience going to Pride, which I think is a common experience that a lot of people when they come out have. It's You can always remember your first one. What was it like for you? My first Pride was in Washington, D.C. Um, in 2009. Um, it was a liberating experience. Um, I had not experienced anything like that before. Well, they do a great Pride on top of it, right? D.C. throws <laughs> they, they throw a good party. Yeah, it was a liberating experience and what moved me most was seeing members of MPD, so Metropolitan Police mm -hmm. Department, um, in the parade themselves. Yep. Um, and being part of the LGBTQ community, um, because I had dreamt of being in a place where I could be myself and possibly be a symbol to other members of our community that you could in fact be gay and a law enforcement officer. Um and I always thought if the federal thing didn't work out, then I could go work for MPD because they had an LGBTQ unit in DuPont Circle. Um, so that was amazing to see. Um, but also the summer of 09 um, was definitely a summer of uncertainty um, as I was in the hiring process for the FBI, the Secret Service, waiting on phone calls, not knowing what's coming. Um, I had split up with my boyfriend, um, had a surgery. And my beloved grandfather passed away um, all in those uh, two or three month period. Mm. So it was a, a trying time. Um, it, was, it was a difficult summer um, as well. Ups and downs, ups and downs. For sure. Well, you, throughout the book, you, you talked about the stresses of the job. Um, I don't know that folks have a really good idea about how demanding a career in the Secret Service is. You, you really don't have much of a life. And as I read about your experience, uh, you really didn't. I mean, during presidential campaign time, your life doesn't belong to you. Talk about the stressors and what that was like. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the stresses and the demands of a Secret Service agent are pretty unique. Um, while you're in the field office or in the field, as it's called, um, you know, I worked criminal or protective intelligence investigations, 
but that just felt more like filler in between protection assignments because it was known that protection assignments are the bread and butter um, with a zero fail mission every time you cannot mess up there can be no failures period um, so it is a stress unlike um, no other and I had to be on my A game each and every time um, which led to many long hours uh, tons of overtime both forced and voluntary um, nights weekends holidays tons of traveling um, but it was a double-edged sword as I wanted to work the trips and not decline assignments um, because I wanted to advance in my career. So if you're viewed as turning down assignments, then that can be bad for your, your trajectory. Sure. Um, and early on, I, that was phase one of my career, trying to go to where I wanted to go. The, it, the next step was critical. Mm -hmm. um, so as I, I was picking up all these trips and working all this over time, whether it was forced or not, um, I was becoming distanced from my home life. Um, my identity became intertwined with the badge on my belt, and I was losing sight of what actually mattered. Not that the Secret Service mission does not matter. It 100% matters every day, all day. But personally, um, I, I was starting to lose track of that. Um, the proximity and access to the world's most powerful and influential people is intoxicating. Um, and people marveled at the the tales of my job, the tales of my travels, um, what stuff I could talk about. Um, but at the end of the day, it was never about me. Um, I was never the one in the spotlight and it took a little while for me to learn that. Um, but it's truly a unique, um, environment. Yeah. I mean, you talked about this a couple of times, cycles of three weeks on straight, and then you'd have three weeks off. But being away from the person you love in your life for three weeks and working really that that time, three weeks in a row, that's tough. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's not like you're getting days off in these three weeks either. You're, you're out on the road uh, three weeks at a time. Like it's you, the uh, presidential cycles, I worked 20, 2012 and 2016. Um, and so in 2012, I traveled the U.S. with a it was a jump team. So it's just a, a team of secret service agents. We all traveled together going from city to city, state to state um, ahead of whatever the presidential candidate um, is going to be coming to us. Uh, we'd work the visit. We, then we'd pack up and move on to the next city. Um, we did this three weeks at a time for the entire year, three weeks out, three weeks home, rinse and repeat. Um, and at the end of 2012, this is my first uh, cycle. Um, it, it was a lot. Um, I walked in one day, it was one of the last cycles and I dropped my bags, hugged my husband and just broke down crying. Um, it's just, it was wearing me out. Um, I was, I was missing out on my own life. Mm -hmm. Um, and same thing in 2016, I was then a jump team leader. So I was ahead of the, the group that was traveling. Um, and same thing, three weeks out, three weeks back, um, the entire year. Um, and by this point, my husband and I had become distant. Uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but I was, again, in a position where I couldn't decline the assignments. Um, I was due to be rotating to my per permanent protective assignment next. And so I had to show up. I had to put forth all the effort in order to get the assignment that I want um, and not something uh, other than that. Um, plus, we were we purchased a brand new big home. We were preparing for adoption. And so the unlimited overtime absolutely helped with preparing sure. us uh, for those big steps. Um, yeah, at the end of 2016, um, yeah, I was due to be reassigned to either the incoming president or um, the Obamas. Um, so I chose. Drum roll, please. You chose. <laughs> Yeah, so I had put in the hard work um, and made a decision that after traveling the, the country with um, Hillary and Trump over the year, um, it, we didn't know who was going to win. Um, and I had to make the decision before the um, election. So I figured the best bet was to go set up the Obama Protective Division um, because they had already had a home in Washington, D.C. And I knew they'd frequent Hawaii, which is my favorite place on Earth. 
So I figured, okay, I'll get to spend a lot of time at home in DC, but also go to Hawaii on a regular basis. Um, and sure enough, that's where I ended up going. Um, yeah, and then after three years, I could transfer to the president's detail, whoever that would have been. Um, so I could do my you know, three years here and three years there, and that would satisfy their requirement. And so that's what I decided to go with. Do you remember the when you got the phone call about the assignment with the Obamas? I do. It was the um, agent in charge of the Washington field office. And that's same thing with Miami, all these big offices. That's that's the person who calls you is the agent in charge. Um, called and told me I got, I was or offering me uh, the Obama Protective Division. Uh, I don't remember where I was in the country at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I was elated to hear the news because, um, again, we by then they had been in office eight years. We had a sense of who they were, how they were going to operate. Um, it was just a more predictable um, assignment, or so I thought, um, as far as it travels. Well, you, yeah, I'm, we're going to leave the listeners to read your book and learn about all the other interesting people that you met uh, and worked with. But talk a little bit more about the the traveling. Was it then more than you thought it was going to be? I mean, you talked about D.C. and and back and forth to Hawaii. That's quite a trip in and of itself. But Yeah, I <clears throat> way underestimated. Um, I, I was short-sighted thinking the Obamas had been cooped up under in the White House for eight years, and they get out and they hit the, the ground running. Um, and we traveled all over the world um, to France, Spain. Um, let's see. I, I actually have a note in my cell phone to this day where through those years, each trip, I had to just make a note in my phone and just start listing them. Um, and they have around 30 trips per year. And some of those are two and three weeks at a time because they would go to Martha's Vineyard for the summer or go to Hawaii for Christmas. Um but the, the places that we were traveling to were, were places I'd never dreamed that I would ever see. These are iconic, amazing destinations that are like dream vacations for, for most people. I mean, here I was um, traveling the world, whether it was Korea, Indonesia, Spain, France, Finland, London. Um, again, there's a list on my phone. We just we were all over the place. And um, somebody else is paying for that vacation. Vacation, <laughs> in quotes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was not me. Um it was an experience like no other, um, but the trade-off is I was gone probably about sixty percent of the time, um, which again was really hard on my personal life. Um, but our detail had an amazing group of agents, and we were we became each other's family, and we had to when you're out if you're gone a month at a time, working eight to sixteen hour shifts, seven days a week. It just depends on what you're doing. Um, we understood that the mission was larger than us, but we made the best of it. And I had a blast on the detail because of the people that were around me. Oh, that's good. Uh, and they are just amazing people. Um, and I keep in touch with them to this day. Uh, and it's funny now, whenever I run into former service agents now, we all immediately just coalesce um, because we have those shared experiences um, of we just, quote unquote, get it. Sure. Um, and think big picture of working these assignments and these these demands. Do you have a relationship with the Obamas? Not, no. <laughs> she, they know who, at the time I've been gone now four years, so would they know who I am today? I don't know. But like Michelle knew how I was. 2019 is the last time I saw. Um, but I do keep in contact with um, some of those staff members and just because, again, we travel the world together. Yeah. But I certainly don't. Uh, hang out have with them in Hawaii with them. <laughs> no. yeah I, as much that, as that would help my book I do not have a relationship with them but I mean you you thank them in the book um, yeah so I have to imagine that that was uh, you know an extraordinary experience for you is there some piece of that that stands out in your mind as being just the absolute best that you think about a lot it, just their genuineness they are Everything you see that's portrayed, their warmth, their intelligence, they are down to earth, modest, friendly. They're just, it, they're just amazing human beings um, outside of politics. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, it, to be in their realm for, for so long was such a wonderful thing. And to learn 
so much from them. Yeah, it's 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 hard to put into words. Um, but you know, I was with Michelle Obama for two years. I think I was assigned to her for two years. Um, so we got to do the Becoming Book Tour, um, and just to see the impact that she was having on people um, was amazing. And filling up these arenas and traveling, you know, cross country tours mm -hmm. and through Canada and Europe um, was amazing to see but one event that stood out we were at the grammys um and michelle walks out with some of music's biggest icons um and the place just erupted in cheers and i was standing stage left um and i got actual goosebumps at what was transpiring in front of me um to hear the level of excitement in the crowd and it, to me it was like witnessing this amazing woman go from being the first lady to this iconic a-list rock star celebrity uh, in her own right. And it was, it was just beautiful to see. Um, and that was actually my last secret service trip, which was very fitting given my music uh, aspirations. Oh, yeah. That's true. I'd hoped to be on that stage giving a speech as an entertainer, but it was also okay to be on that stage um, as a bystander uh, witnessing history. Yeah. Uh, so I got to ask, did, did the book tour with Michelle Obama inspire you at all to write your own? It did. Um, yeah, I, I, I saw that just how the crowds reacted and how she interacted and how her story, and we are in no way similar, Michelle. So I am not comparing myself to her in any way, shape or form. Um, but yeah, it did. Um, yes. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really, really awesome. So let's talk about the book a little bit. Um, what was it like for you to really, after being closeted for so long, to write in such, and there's some level of intimate detail about your relationship with men and some of the parties and some of the things that went on. You revealed a lot. What was that like when you did that and it went off to the print? And now it's out to the world. Um, I get this question often. Um, it was mildly terrifying um, at first. I just, I, I was unsure how it would be received. Um, but when I sat down to write it, um, I, I wrote it for myself, first and foremost. And I felt the only way for me to truly address things from the past was to go all in. Um, and whether I was worried about my legacy or just trying to, again, I had not sat still for so long of a period of my life that this is a way that I, I just wanted to catalog my thoughts and, and just get it down and process. Um, but I just, I didn't want to hold back. And I felt that there was a lack of material out there that talked about nuances of gay relationships. And had I had access to that stuff before I was married to my ex-husband, I could have potentially avoided some pitfalls and things could have been different, but mm -hmm. it felt like there wasn't anything out there where people in our community were outwardly talking about being in an open marriage or um, having fun with friends or whatever you want to label it. Um, you know, it was trying to remove some of that stigma mm -hmm. um, and that's to this day is still, you know, I, I still deal with that and I still process it. But it's out there and um, and it's seemingly resonating with people who've read it and are reaching out and telling me and th it makes it 100% worth it um, to put it out there. And even if mom and my aunt have read it and approved, well, then that's the, the gold star of approval there. Sure. So, Well, I, you know, what I got from your story is you went from someone who was, I'll describe personally conservative, you know, yep. to someone who was very open. Um, and open to different forms of a married relationship. And you talked in there about the different things that you learned from the different men that you had met, different men that you've had a relationship uh, in the book. What's a couple that stand out, life lessons that you got from partners? Wow. Um, so my first boyfriend um, slash now ex-husband, um, I wouldn't be who I am today without having, we were together for 10 years mm -hmm. and, and he walked with me from 
being deeply closeted and conservative to swing, not swinging, um, but having unabashed fun in Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Um, and we just, we grew a lot together. Um, so I, I owe, I owe him a lot for us growing together and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Mm -hmm. Um, cause it's mm -hmm. led me to where I'm at today. Um, and Alex, um, he was the catalyst that burnt down the barn as I like to call it. Um, that ended the marriage. Um, we, we, he was just, I haven't talked to him in years. Um, I, I guess he's done with his PhD by now. Um, but he served uh, an important role in my life and that's what I needed at the time to save me from myself to sell, you know, there was a lot wrong with our marriage. Um, and I just put on a smile and, and I wasn't happy for many years. Um, and to feel alive again and to know that, that that passion and that fire that burns down existed, mm -hmm. uh, was absolutely amazing and, and hard to put into words. Um, and even the last guy in New York learned a lot from him. Again, they're just breaking down these barriers and these walls that um, we all put up through life, through our experiences. And they were all teaching me in different ways um, to be myself, to be accepting and be kind to myself and what red flags in a relationship and good things in a relationship. So, no, I'm thankful for, for all of them and all they I've learned. Yeah. Well, the Secret Service was obviously a very consuming profession, a consuming job. And I got this sense in reading it that there was, you talked about the allure of some of the assignments and the, and the fun and the excitement that comes with that. So it sort of sucks you in. So how did you, in the title of your book, break free? Um, it, coincidentally, <laughs> it's that time of year. Um, so Facebook reminded me a few days ago. Um, of my breakdown on the spinning bike in Mexico. Um, that was in 2018, um, where I was just beat down emotionally. I, I think I had, I was supposed to fly home. I was in grad school at the time and then I had to cancel the class and that was going to fail me out of that course. And I was paying for grad school and I was supposed to be home, but then the trip got extended. Um, and I just, that was my breaking point. Um, and it was, I'm so thankful it was recognizable. Um, and just sobbing on a spinning bike for whatever it was, an hour or two in Mexico of all places. And I knew right then and there, I have to change. Something has to change. I cannot do this anymore. Um, and that was what prompted me to, to start to affect the change. Um, and I started looking for other jobs. Um, and I met um, the guy who lived in L.A. at the time. Um, and so I applied for jobs in California. The, the job market in DC is um, very competitive and secret service agents at the time, were all looking for outside job. We're all looking for that normalcy. Um, and so I, I couldn't get an interview in DC. Um, so I ended up landing an interview in Fresno. Um, and then exactly a year later after that Facebook post is the first day on my new job um, when I got to Fresno. Um, so it was mm. just weird, beautiful timing. Um, even through the government shutdown of 20, 2018 into 2019. That delayed things a little bit, but um, I, I just, I knew I had to break free. I, and after the divorce, I had always wanted children. Um, I, I've known that since I was young. Um, and I knew if I ever wanted to like, actually have a solid relationship, be home, be present, and have a family, that I had to make the change. Do you have it? Uh, most of it. Uh, <laughs> we're actually doing surrogacy. Um, awesome. so hope we're hoping for good news here in the near future. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been an amazing, uh, an amazing trip. Um, and I'm, and I'm so thankful for the way things have worked out. That's fantastic. Well, where can readers go to find your book? Uh, easiest is Corey Allen um, Corey Allen Sorry. Uh, Facebook, uh, Breaking Free Memoir. And that's the same on Instagram, Breaking Free Memoir. And then TikTok and Twitter is at Corey, uh, I'm sorry, at author Corey Allen. 
Very good. And if you miss those websites, we'll have them on our own website at OutBeatNews.com. You can click show notes at the top of the page, and then we'll have some links to Corey Allen's book and how to follow him, because I'm sure this uh, life of yours is going to continue on some interesting paths now, especially as you enter parenthood. That's going to be exciting, huh? Yeah, well, we absolutely cannot wait. It's been a long journey um, for, for, for us to have our children. Um, so we're getting there. Um, but i that's the one thing left of my, my real dream of having a family. So we're, we're getting there, and I, I can't wait. Well, that'll be a great second edition. And it, there the will book. be one. To the oh, book. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You got it. Well, the book is called Breaking Free, a Saga of Self-Discovery by a gay Secret Service agent, Corey Allen. Corey, thanks so much for being with us tonight for sharing your story, and most importantly, for writing the book and making it available to so many people. It, it is truly my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Greg. And don't forget, Corey Allen will be doing a book signing this Friday night at the Russian River Books and Letter Company. That's at 14045 Armstrong Woods Road in Guerneville. The event starts at 7 p.m. and is open to everyone. And that brings us to the end of our hour. Tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio, 104.9 FM. In the meantime, have a great week. Happy Pride Weekend, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News In Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at OutBeatNews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at OutBeatNews.com. I love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I give it up to You're broken down and tired Of living life on the merry-go-round And you can't find a fighter But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out Move mountains We gon' walk it out and move mountains Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCB-FM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCB-FM Roanoke Park and KRCG-FM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.